we have a new sponsor of ad spend. Do you hate money? Well, if you hate money, you're going to hate retention.com. If you love money, you're going to love retention.com. And you're going to hear a little bit more about them later in the show. But you can go sign up right at retention.com if you can't wait till then. Enjoy the episode of ad spend exclusively on the Triple Whale Network. Anything where you're getting people in a group to to communicate with them, it's like a training wheels community. You need to go into it with a certain mentality. Like how many brands give people a reason to sign up for their emails beyond offers? The offer is the carrot and the stick is like the other five emails we're going to send you every week. You have to give people a reason to be there. If your brand is a year old and your five AOV customers made like three lifetime purchases with you, you, you might be jumping the gun on community. Three, two, one. All right, folks, welcome back to your favorite D2C podcast. No, you did not tune into the wrong podcast. Ash is out there conquering the world. Shout out, just got into Walmart. I actually believe he's in Mexico right now doing some stuff for his wedding. So we can't, we can't, got to keep the trains on time. So I brought in uh, somebody near and dear to my heart, biggest brain I know in marketing, Sonder Schroeder. Sonder, welcome to the show. Thank you for pinch hitting for Ash Balwani. Um, the drip is not as good as Ash's, but the background is better. So it bounces out. And then, as always, we brought in one of my favorite humans, a criminally underfollowed Twitter account, Alex Grayfield at HeyAlexP. Um, just incredible newsletter, incredible build big brain thinking. We're going to get into a lot of interesting things today, uh, most specifically LTV, retention, uh, brand building. And then I might actually throw some luxury takes your way. I've been on this really interesting luxury kick, and I know that you did a lot of work with uh, high-end fashion brands in the past as well. So... Um, we'll get into all of that stuff, but uh, before that, how are things? You just had a kid. Life is good. You look wonderful. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to to jam on some of these topics, and you know, things are going great. A little bit crazy, but but generally good. Oh, I love that. Uh, well, let's just jump right in. So, tell me your thoughts on LTV. You have a really interesting take on. Essentially, people's LTV is, for the most part, baked in at the first purchase. Can you expand on that thought? Yes. So LTV is one of those great terms where it's it's said a lot, but no one there's no universal definition, and everyone's talking something different. And what you I, I've done a lot of retention work with different brands, at trying to basically break customers into buckets to understand what are the things that drive LTV. And if you're working with a, a motto brand e-commerce business, what you'll often find is that around 70% of your customers could make one purchase, like they never come back. So you have the other 30% that's really generating your, you know, your above average LTV behavior. And you'll find that the top 10%, they're probably just high net worth individuals because they come in hot. It's like they come in buying multiple categories. Their AOV is way higher than anyone else in your customer file. And it's like, you need disposable income to shop a single brand that way. So there's not, you know, anyone's LTV, there's a ceiling on it, which is just like their total disposable income. And you can't change that marketing. Um, so when I say it's baked in, I mean, that's a big component of it. Yeah, I actually, uh, 
spouted this hot take at Shopify, uh, and I didn't shout you out, so criminal of me. Um, but I totally agree. I think there's a certain aspect. I think there is two levers to actually move LTV that I think are still aligned with your thesis. One, people get make more money, which is still aligned with your thesis. And then two subscriptions, where a subscription is a much different purchase than a one-time purchase because a subscription, the way I think of it is you just have to generate enough value for that person not to get mad and have to cancel. Whereas a purchase, you have to convince that person to purchase every single time. And so I know you're doing a lot of really interesting things in retention marketing, uh, but before we jump into that, how do you think of segmenting your customers? Like what buckets are you putting people into? So I think about segmentation in a few ways that are there that are actually pretty basic and straightforward. Um, at first is you look at all of your new customers. If they're in the top 50% in terms of AOV and UPT, you should really be like going hard on post-purchase marketing. So let's say, you know, your your AOV for the whole business is $50 and your your UPT is like 1.5. If, if someone's coming in at $75 and two or three units per transaction, you you need to be like emailing them frequently post-purchase, potentially following up with them with direct mail, potentially even with a human outreach for the top, top bucket of those customers. And then you need to be really thinking about your offer post-purchase because those are your they're basically like your highest probability of becoming really valuable customers. First purchase is a good predictor of future behavior. So, so that's one segmentation framework I use. And then the other is just number of lifetime orders. Typically, um, your customers don't become loyal until their third or fourth purchase. And loyalty is another great term that's like flood around really frequently and, and never defined. But I like to define loyalty as um, the, an average customer has a greater than 50% chance of coming back and buying again versus churning. So that typically happens at purchase three or four. So like say within the email file, I like to break it up into prospects, what I call the nurture phase, which is pre-loyalty customers and then loyal customers. And you'll find that there are um, the, the merchandise and the messaging and the offers that appeal to each of those groups most effectively are going to be different because essentially there are different levels of buy-in. It's like when, you're, when your customers are loyal, they're totally sold on you. And so you get more complex and you can uh, feature like a greater variety of categories, but everyone else is just kind of like, they may have purchased from you once, but they're they're still they're feeling you out. Yeah, I really like that. What are your thoughts, Sander? Yeah, I love I love how you break out those segments. Um, super smart. How how do you find the right mix between providing value in those email offers versus just providing an offer or really pushing people to buy a product? You know, it, it really depends on the business and what their objectives are and what they're comfortable with. Like my background, I've worked at, um, I've worked at like really elevated luxury brands who are reluctant to give any kind of offers. And I've worked at outlet businesses where uh, there's a ton of marketing, uh, margin padding broken and baked into the purchase. And it's like, they just do tons and tons of offers. So if you're, 
if you're like, I want to get paid back on my acquisition investment ASAP, honestly, like there's probably not a ton of incremental benefit in thinking about hyper-personalized offers versus just like running a different offer every week. That said, it's like when you're thinking about your ladder of tactics, that's like your last resort tactic. It's like your broadest last resort tactic. So it's if I if I was trying to build a brand and sell it in 10 years, I wouldn't be doing that because I'd want to let my acquirer do that. That's going to be a value add for them. I love that. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, that's super smart. So in terms of that, then what are you, so you're saying I bucket, so I guess let's just do a, a little hypothetical. So we have a brand that has say, you know, five or six SKUs, I guess, cause the SKU count also determine kind of the offer level, right? Cause most brands only have like three to five kind of hero SKUs, unless you start to get into apparel and stuff where segmentation and inventory starts to become a big, big thing, right? Where it's, I want the thing, but I don't have the thing to sell you. Um, but so say you have like a three to six SKU, um, store, what are you thinking in terms of like a retention program there? So you get, you get somebody to bite, um, like how are you measuring? Cause we have like these little Sankey diagrams and triple where, um, I like to say the first purchase you're, uh, basically you go on a date, the second purchase you're engaged and the third purchase you're married, kind of similar to what you're thinking in terms of that, that loyalty, like after that third, fourth purchase. That person's pretty much bought into the brand, which is a great place to be if you can have some sort of subscription product again. But if you're if your brand doesn't lend well to subscription, like apparel and stuff, is very very difficult to get people on subscriptions. Um, what are some other levers that you pull in terms of retention? So you said direct mail, um, like something like Postpilot. You, you've seen some success with that. You like that for kind of like your higher end customers, or do you do you blast it out to everybody? Or like how do you? Give me some more insight into how you're segmenting the actual offer mechanics and then overlaying that to the segments. Got it. So the first thing I'll say about brands with a limited SKU count, there are brands with a limited SKU count who also don't have an inherent, I guess, kind of like an, uh, a tendency for people to subscribe or replenish. And in those scenarios, I think before you start talking about retention tactics, you should talk about assortment expansion. Like there are certain brands who hit, they hit a ceiling and marketing isn't the answer. Like merchandising and assortment strategy is the answer. Putting those aside. Um, I love that. I, I like to, it, it, typically a, a brand, no matter if they have more than like three or four SKUs, they'll have a hero SKU and supporting SKUs, or they'll have they'll have something that has a, a higher repeat rate than the rest of the assortment or brings in higher value customers than the rest of the assortment. Um, it's kind of like the habit forming products versus the supporting products. So, so you have like your ha your habit forming products and they don't, I'm not talking about, you know, coffee necessarily. It's like, it could be something that people just really love and buy again and again. Um, you want to figure out what those are. And so, so essentially you have your VIP product audience yeah. offer. That's one funnel. That's like your highest touch, highest investment retention strategy, potentially even your deepest post-purchase offer. 
you, you have to think about what the person's going to find most valuable. Is it going to be a bounce back coupon or is it going to be a member of the customer care team reaching out to them and saying like, you know, I'll be a point person 24 hours a day. Um, so you have that the VIP bucket. Then you have people who come in through your habit building category. You want to just encourage them to purchase again. Again, that might be through an offer. It might be through just like general marketing messaging. Um, it could be showing them the same product in different variations. And then you have everyone else and you want to guide them into your habit forming category so that hopefully they get hooked on that and their repeat rate gets higher. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So uh, again, going back to Shameless Plug with the Triple Well stuff, uh, I like to call those kind of gateway products where they're a really great first purchase, but they don't have repeat purchases, but but they bring you through the door that does get to that repeat purchase product. So you might buy product A for the first purchase and you go, oh man, second and third purchase, they're not buying product A anymore, but you're getting them into what you're uh, dubbing that habit forming product where it's like, this is a really cool, like came, came for X, but stayed for Y kind of thing. And I think that's a really great way to structure your marketing because, um, to your point, like you want people to buy more and more stuff. And the other thing is these products lend very well usually to paid media because these are usually the best representations of your brand. That's the worst thing I've seen in accounts when you I, I see people pumping money behind really low margin, non-high peak, non-repeat purchase products. It's like keep that product, that's fine, but like in no world should you ever be putting paid media behind that. Like the economics just don't make sense. Like your your paid media should be behind uh, high velocity, high margin products, not these low velocity, low margin products, even though people like them or what have you. Um, the really interesting take. Where does the kind of, so you said coupon buybacks. It, I get a little bit, uh, going back to that, your uh, incredible term, ladder of tactics, which I absolutely adore. Uh, where does discounting come in? Because I, I am pretty anti-discount. Like my thesis is a lot of times people aren't, very rarely are people not buying because the price, it's just a catch-all kind of easy thing to say where it's, oh, it's too expensive or it's too much money for me versus, oh, I don't see the value that this product is actually giving me, but I don't want to say that. So I just say price. How do you think of discounting? So I used to be rapidly anti-discount and I think coming from the retail world, it's like your, your products have like a three to six month shelf life, even though like they're closed, they don't go bad. They're not eggs, but you still have to, you know, discount them and move them out at the, the end of the season. I I've kind of changed my perspective on that because yeah, um, I have just, I, it just works. It's like, there's a certain, I mean, TJ Maxx is a billion dollar company for a reason. It's like there there is actually an audience who who shops for discounts. It's like it's like going to the casino for them, but they can they don't feel like they're doing something wrong. It's like the thrill of going in and seeing what products you're gonna find at what discount is like a dopamine thing and and it's like a form of entertainment. It's not even about the brand or the product or the category. It's about like Ooh, look what I got for eight dollars today. It, that's a business model, and like I can't knock it. Um, but but what I'm thinking about maybe it, you just have to be really thoughtful about discounting because it's it, discounting broadens your audience in a really like low lift and 
predictable way. And, you know, when you start doing it, it's hard to stop doing it. So I think it's, I think it's reasonable to use discounts to incentivize customer behavior, but you should reserve it for like your highest leverage opportunities. And that's usually getting people from purchase one to purchase two. Like that's usually the biggest bottleneck in retention for every brand. If you, like, I think discounts can be effective, but you just can't get in the habit of using them to get yourself out of all of your problems. I love that. One one quick comment on that, Rubba. Before, oh man, I don't even know how long ago it was. Eight years ago, I oversaw marketing for a marketplace. We had about 5 million email subscribers. We normally had a pretty good hypothesis of what we should put in our daily and mid-afternoon email just based on popularity and what was selling in the mornings. But if we never if we couldn't decide what that was, we would lead with the product that had the biggest discount at the top of the email. And it always became the top selling product for that exact reason, because everyone wanted the best deal for that day. So totally, I don't know, saw that case study. I'm very curious on how, so you gave a great TJ Maxx, kind of like the Ross example. How do you think about that if you are a luxury brand like a Louis? Yeah. Hermes. Yeah, Hermes is massive. LVMH is going through the roof. And like, there is a whole great podcast uh, called Acquire. They just did a whole, I mean, Bernard Arnault is the richest man in the world. First non-founder as well, which is kind of mind blowing. Uh, but uh, there's just a different playbook for luxury. But let me, let me put a pin in there because I, I do want to explore that. But I want to just play devil's advocate because I'm super anti-discount. But I do take your point that there is uh, a time and a place. But I think that is also, and again, if you guys listen to any of these podcasts, you know, I'm a super job to be done maxi. The job to be done there is to make people feel like they're getting, it's an IQ test. It's not a deal where it's like, I am dumb if I don't buy this. Like, this is crazy that I, I have this, like, I, and I can't go into TJ Maxx. Amazon gets me all the time. I bought like crazy stuff on saxwithapp.com where I bought like a crazy blanket. What was a thousand dollars? It's only $200 now. Like, like these deals, it's like, I can't pass this up. I don't even need this. It's not a utility buy. It's a, a economically irresponsible not to partake in this offer. But with that being said, there is some challenges to you. A couple things, right? One, you get uh, the group on effect where you just get shitty customers, where just people, you just get ball hawkers and you never like those people, especially for small businesses are the worst people. Like you 0% want those people. Um, I think in apparel, you can kind of do it in an interesting way because you do, like, I think fashion is one of the hardest industries ever because you basically have to reinvent the demand without having any really utility vectors to improve on. Whereas like tech is really easy, right? Like, go look at my iPhone, it's faster, the camera's better, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these kind of utility vectors that you can actually improve on. Where fashion's like, a shirt's a shirt. And not only do you have to say, hey, this shirt is awesome, but then like six months later, you're like, ah, that shirt's not that awesome this shirt is actually awesome. And like, it's, it's really challenging to have to generate that demand. But um, I think the Groupon effect, and then you get uh, kind of a chilling effect as well, where people start to wait for the discount. And so you see this a lot in September and October, where it's like Black Friday's coming up. I'm just going to make my big haul on Black Friday because I know they're going to discount, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what would you push back? Or like, how would you push back on those two points? So... I think, again, it's incredibly business-specific. Yeah, sure. careful. 
if if you're really trying to to build and preserve brand equity, then I agree with you. Discounting just erodes it. And um, if you have to do it at the end of the season to clear out inventory or once a year to clear out inventory, then you just have to be really thoughtful about the uh, the don't use it as a huge acquisition lever and be thoughtful about how much you're working things down. The, that said, it's like you're building brand equity, but like to what end? You know, you really have to be thoughtful about that. Like, I I guess, and you're right. You know, if you're if you're selling things at 50, 60, 70 percent off, that's a total group on effect where you're bringing in customers who are never going to buy from you at full price. And the higher your full price, the the greater that disparity is going to be. So. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a thorny issue. I think what's what's even what makes it even harder is, you know, you're a brand and you're trying to keep your growth momentum going and rolling along. And it's and it's kind of like you're looking at all of your options and discounting is usually the one that has the highest probability of paying off the fastest. It's not just a philosophical conversation. It's like a what are my capabilities and what is how much cash do I have in the bank kind of conversation. So that's why I'm a lot I I'm a lot less strict about it or I'm a lot less dogmatic about it uh, because in real life it's like you just real life comes and smacks you in the face sometimes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's one 100% to your point of uh, business specific, right? Like what are the goals? And then to your uh, I think it's so eloquently put where like brand equity is essentially the ability to make somebody want to buy something. And so like with that, like how do you leverage that brand equity? Because if you have a ton of brand equity, but people aren't buying, like you're starting to get some cash flow issues. You're starting to get this some like some economic quagmires where it's like, okay, let's discount, discount, discount. But then all of a sudden you're discounting yourself into like not being this premium product anymore. And so now you're competing on price. And whenever you compete on price, you're dead. Unless you're like a Walmart or somebody that has actual economies of scale where you become the price setter, not the price taker. And that that's very rarely a DTC company. Like they're just not at the scale to say, hey, I'm going to buy all these transistors, but I'm only going to pay X amount for them, sell them to me um, versus like you, you, you're essentially a price taker usually in DTC. Uh, so I, I really do appreciate that take because again, I'm not anti-discount. I just feel like, the the short-term wins can sometimes be at the detriment to long-term gains however like if you're dead the long-term doesn't matter like there's a whole economic joke we're all dead in the long run right and so i i think to your point it's a it's a very big balance um that you need to tread lightly but i have seen just um people that have great businesses kind of have that short-term cash game but then what and then like essentially I'm price anchored down to I'm always getting 20% off, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not, again, I think it's more of a value generation thing where how can you make sure that these people feel like they're getting the value for the product? Um, and then my last pet peeve, and then I'll, I'll jump to the luxury stuff is um, what are your thoughts on discounting for your best consumers? So like VIPs and stuff. So like this used to break my brain when I would on uh, audit accounts and people are like, okay, cool. We're going to send our top customers for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, 30% off or our best deal. And that would absolutely like, it just broke my brain because you're going to send the people that have like 
to your point, probably high net income, probably disposable income, and you're going to ask them to buy your product at the deepest discount when they don't even need it. Um, how do you tackle that? So I think sending your best customers your deepest discount or some kind of clearance offer is not, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be running clearance. Like if your business is healthy, you shouldn't be, nothing should be at 70% off unless your business model is like TJ Maxx and Ross. Right. So I, so Net-A-Porte, I know if you spend, it's almost like the Sephora loyalty program where if you spend a certain amount, they just, they're like, okay, use this promo code whenever you want. You'll get 20, 30% off your entire order. I think that can actually increase purchase frequency and get you to a place where your best customers are spending more than they would have otherwise. You need to back it up with merchandise they actually want to buy or else it won't work. But um, I think it can, it almost becomes like a, a bragging rights thing for people. Like I'm a, yep. I'm a Sephora, a Sephora, I don't know what the highest rank is, I, you know, but I, or I'm a, uh, I think for Net-A-Forte, Net it's like EIP. It's extremely important person. Oh, <laughs> that's what they call it. So, so it, there's a, it's almost like a, an add-on effect of being part of like the secret discount program. You, there are ways to get your best customers to spend more. I think you always have to hold out test loyalty ideas because that's the only way to know if um, they're actually driving incremental spend. No, I like that. I do think there's, to your point, I'll, I'll back off my super anti-discount where I think there are points to your what you said earlier where you can incentivize people to get past a certain milestone that you know if people get to a third or fourth purchase, like they, they're going to be in, super in. And like you can use that to say, hey, you know, um, we just released this new thing. Because um, that that to me is more exciting where it's like you get exclusive offers, quote unquote, versus deep discount. Because again, these people don't need the discount. They get value from the... the uh, the prestige of being in this 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 really core group of people so you get access to this you get to talk to the founder alex uh on a call you get like there's other like incentives that i think you can do versus just price points but uh i do i do take your point the other thing too that uh, sander has a bunch of experience with as well as myself is uh, bundling or giving like free high margin products away so there's like this huge perceived value but then there is this really low debt on the business. So you, you might say, okay, cool. If you do buy this amazing thing, you buy $100 or $200 of concealer from Sephora, we're going to give you this really fancy brush that makes you makes it easy to put the concealer on that's worth $30 or $40, when in reality this cost me you know, a dollar in margin, or in cogs, excuse me. But you're seeing this as like a $20 or $50 gift or something like that, where it's like, oh, and, and on top of that, why I like it that much is because it empowers you and enables you to consume the product more. <laughs> yeah, I think gift with purchase can be really powerful. Um, it's something that it, it can often, it, it often works better as a loyalty tactic versus a nurture tactic because yep, it's like, 100%. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. What else you got to add on the discount and Sonner? Have I, have I beat the dead horse? Are you, are you going to send me a, a post-purchase offer for 20% off? No, this is good. I like it. It's just getting me, getting me thinking. I like, I love the loyalty. I think one, 
one of my big predictions for this year is I almost, it feels like this year will be almost the year for community marketing. I don't know fully. That's a great term. Yeah. I think, I think we're starting to see people dabble in it with like circle mighty networks. Um, I mean, we've seen it with Facebook groups, but I feel like that more only works with an older demographic now. Is there anything, Alex, that you're seeing on that community marketing front? Um, and and I don't think it needs to be like within a separate community per se, but anything around community marketing that you're seeing? So community is another one of those words that are, <laughs> it's like a, a buzzword with no common definition. And I your email list is a community. It's a bunch of people that you convince to, you know, receive communications from you. I would push back on that. Can I push back on that for a second? Push away. I think I think a community has to one enable two way communication, and two has to have uh, the ability to communicate with non brand people. And so, email does not do that. So, I would put email. I would say is own media, but is not a community. Like a YouTube channel. Like it's not like a quasi community because you can get some semblance of feedback, but it's in comments and it's asynchronous. And those people can't really communicate with other people because you're essentially disparate. You're, you're distributed across all these videos. And so like the way I think about a community is like a church. You can evangelize that. Got it. So then also I'll say like email, some of these marketing channels, it's basically anything where you're getting people in a group to, to communicate with them it's like a quasi community. It's like a training wheels community. And <laughs> I, I think you need, it, it's basically like you need to go into it with a certain mentality. Like how, how many brands give people a reason to sign up for their emails beyond offers? It's, it's kind of like that, that the offer is the carrot and the stick is like the other five emails we're going to send you every week. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, community is you, I, I feel like it's most effective when you have some kind of um, objective behind it. That's a goodwill objective. Like it can't be a way of, you can't, you can't go into it thinking it, like you're going to turn this into a, but what is essentially like functionally a, an own channel? You have to give you people a reason to be there and you need evangelists and loyalists and people who really care about the product in the first place. So if you're, if your brand is a year old and you have people making like the, your, your five AOV customers made like three lifetime purchases with you. It's, you, you might be jumping the gun on community. Like that's something where that you're going to really have to put a lot of legwork into and nurture because it doesn't just happen organically like that. Retention.com isn't just sponsoring ad spend and retention.com isn't just there to help you grow your email funnels. They're also an amazing resource for marketers. Check out their podcast, check out their YouTube channel, check out their resources, including the five fundamental marketing flows you need to grow. Get all of that at retention.com. The link is in the description below. Those are really strong takes. I think that I'm, so I'm a big community marketing. Um, so, so this is good. Like Saunders, like good cop. I'm like a bad cop. It's for everybody listening. Alex is like my muse, marketing muse. So if, if I come off cross douchey and stuff like that, 0%. She's, she's brilliant. Um, the community stuff, 
is kind of paradoxical because I totally agree with everything you're saying, but community is also compounding. And so the earlier you start it, the better. But again, like you can't convert people in an empty church. And so there's, there's a certain aspect of, I totally agree with what you're saying, but if you don't start now and then you try and like bolt it on later, it gets, it gets a little harder. But to your point, like if you can become this, then to extend kind of the churchy analogy, like this really uh, incredible preacher that isn't just telling you, Hey, I'm going to, you should buy some of my products. But like, Hey, this is other things to make your life better. And these are how we can improve you. And I, like, like the carrot and the stick thing of like, you can't see community as a, the business objective for a community is to generate value for your members and connect them with other like-minded members. It shouldn't be seen as a profit center. It shouldn't be seen as anything other than how can you help these people, um, even if they don't buy, like, what are you doing? Would you join this community if you weren't using the product? Or like, I think that is, cause it gets into some really interesting aspects of, um, not only like shared suffering, but also like people have different issues that you can connect. And if you can help somebody emotionally, especially early on, and you do it for free, man, you got a ton of goodwill to capitalize on. Like, and if you can perpetually do that over and over and over again, you can really get a lot of leeway in terms of product, in terms of uh, actual being able to get, uh, you know, candid feedback um, where it's like, they're not going to just tell you what you want to hear. They can like be your be straight up with you. Um, product drops, they can influence a lot of things. So I do take your point. I think that it's definitely one, it's really hard to build and it's really hard to convince leadership that you need it. Like, why don't we just spend more money or what? Like, so I think all the things that you're bringing up are absolutely valid. Um, but I do think if you have a product that is built, like, for example, if you're selling dog food for like, we have a really cool client, um, that does specific dog food for your particular dog. Like you tell them what breed you have, how big they are, what your goals are, and they'll formulate actual dog food thing. Like that for me is right for a community. Like you throw people into a community, share your dog pictures. When do you walk your dog? How do you deal with this? My dog just hurt his ACL. How do I fix it? Do you fix it? Is there red flags and vet? There's all these like ancillary knowledge products that you can build into a community that again, generate implicit value for you. And what that does, shout out Robert Chan, Cialdini, Implodes, is it builds reciprocity. Where it's like, they're doing all this good stuff for me and they're not asking me for anything. Maybe I should buy the product. Maybe I should shout out how awesome the product is. Maybe I should do these things where um, if you have this very transactional relationship, and that's one of the things that Triple Well we're trying to do is shift it from a subscription, or yeah, from a subscription to a membership. Where subscription is this very flaccid, like this thing I'm going to cancel. I, I buy a thing and they, they give me the utility. Like I have a subscription to my utility company, right? Or a subscription to cable. But there's not like, I only have it because I need it. Versus a membership is something you're part of. It's a community. There's all these other things that come with this membership. Part of that membership is getting access to Tripwell, but it's also getting access to an R1 Nation. It's also listening to cool podcasts like this. There's all these things that come together in a membership model that I think is more compelling than a subscription model. But I do take your points. It's a hard sell. It's a very hard sell. Um, and it's, it's a bit like content where again, it's compounding. So for the first, you know, month to six months or what have you, you're essentially screaming into the ether and leadership's like, why am I giving you all these resources to have your mom and your sister <laughs> click on the email and join the group? Like, and so I, I definitely think there's some headwinds, but, uh, I don't know. I think it's to your point, definitely business specific, but if done well, I think it can actually turn into a moat for a business, which is which is really interesting to me in terms of because uh, you can't buy a community. 
Like you can buy all these other things. I can spend more money on ads. I can buy better products. I can talk to my, like I can deploy capital in all these other ways to get instant impact. You can't buy a community. Same way is like, it's really hard to buy content. Like you can kind of sort of buy content, but really at the end of the day, content is really about driving a destination. Like, oh, I know they're going to have the best content. So I go there. That's really hard to just buy. I mean, outside of, yes, you can acquire sites, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it's, it's not that kind of direct line thing, but anyway, I'm kind of ranting here, but I, I, all your points are very valid, but I do think people should explore community when necessary, because it can be this, this really interesting pathway to, like, I, I like what you call it, community marketing. What'd you call it, Sander? Oh, that's aligned. Yep. Yeah, it's a little fluffy, but we'll we'll see where it goes, you know? Well, especially if you have a charismatic founder or somebody that is some sort of uh, personality that you can drop in there. Because what's what's interesting, sorry for all the triple well references, but what's interesting in terms of Narwhal Nation, 55% of the messages are actually DMs. And so it's just people connecting with other people, which I think is really when you know, like the the inmates are running the asylum kind of thing. I think that's when you know your community is really kind of peaked off but I've, I'm on the Narwhal of Narwhal Nation channel I will plug it it is there's a lot of good information in there I think every brand every good brand needs to think figure out <laughs> a way to add value that that goes beyond like simply pushing people to buy community and in, in my perspective it makes the most sense where it's like a, a something you're using every day or every week that gets really integrated into your life and something where you're you'd be proud to associate yourself with other people that use the thing so like b2b products yeah that makes that that's like a natural fit like dog food stuff that has to do with your kids like peloton had had that really big facebook community for a long time like that totally fits the bill um, but if you're some some kind of a product for some emba- embarrassing ailment or like a <laughs> like really plunger, like you shouldn't be diapers. Try to, um, I don't know. Like there's probably another way your your brand can add value. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Again, everything is gray. Gray, folks, see what I did there? Come on, Sather's trying to keep up, baby. Uh, there's definitely definitely some gray areas there, but I think it's something that. The, the reason why I like it is at the beginning, one of the challenges when you're growing is you concentrate too much on lagging indicators and lagging indicators you have no control over. Whereas leading indicators, something like, hey, post in a community, get a community, start a newsletter, these things that like you can put these actual like leading indicators to not feel like you're failing constantly. Like if you say, I want to make a million dollars this year, that's great, but that's a lagging indicator. How are you going to get there? And what are the building blocks that you can focus on that you can actually control versus um, just concentrating on these lagging indicators? And so, um, no, no, I totally take your point. Uh, um, the one, one thing to add to that yeah. I think is interesting with this community marketing is... I love I mean, that term, by the way. More, more or less like Mr. Beast has built an empire on community marketing. Right? So he more or less built his community first. Look at you know, what Logan Paul and KSI have done with Prime, like you see so many, now obviously they're influencers and I think there's a fine line between influencers and communities. You look at like the NFT space though, that's just people buying artwork, but they're like, man, the NFT Discord channels are insane. And it's like crazy how much loyalty and community is there, but they, even before they launch, it's like they go in and build this community before launch. So I think, yeah, I think it's great 
at any point early i think's great late's great i just think there's so much opportunity and i think it really like builds into that entire ltv conversation yeah i guess just to put a like a, a pin in that i think at the end of the day for community it needs to be one sincere and it needs to be customer centric and it needs to be value generative like if you don't have those three things don't start it because if not it just starts to get into this really weird place of it feels like a money grab or it's like oh i'm just trying to get money from this other place um, versus keeping it transactional you ready for some questions oh yeah all right amazing i'm going to start with you first alex and i'll go to you sander um and this is going to be a great question for alex because you always post these like obscure luxury brands i have no clue what's going on i have to like look them up but uh, what brand do you look to the most for inspiration it's not a luxury brand. I really look at the beauty and the supplement space for marketing inspiration because that is the ratio of marketing to anything else is so high that that's where you're going to get the best ideas. Great consumables, great economics. Like that, that's why like our biggest category on triple is uh, health and beauty. Like the, the economics are just the best. Like if you can get, like get people in, get people consuming. Um, and then to your point, there's a, there's a little bit of, uh, product breath where it's like you might need a concealer for this you might need eyeshadow for that or you and you can really take over um that whole market uh and the loyalty is very high once you get in almost like shoes where it's like once you find your beauty brand like you're going to take that from my dead cold hand unless they do something crazy so no no specific brand though you're not going to name drop nothing no what about uh, that crazy dress thing that you you found it was like like a ten thousand dollar dress or something you're like how are they even doing this or my favorite thing is to look through luxury funnels because you're like if you want to understand never like no best practice shout out but great newsletter sign up but there's literally like an anti-marketing playbook for luxury it's incredible and i i love it like the, the friction isn't a bug it's a feature like the, yeah. I, there's so many luxury ads i see with no ctas you know like i just kind of giggle I'm like they get it they get it it was a two thousand dollar tree stone that was my most recent one. Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Luxury brands and, and Jenny Kane's not even a luxury brand. Uh, it's a like the 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 clothing and the shoes and stuff are like a contemporary price point. Um, but but high but, but it's like they use that to bring in a high income customer and then I guess sell them a two thousand dollar tree stem because people there's this whole thing about like people homes are becoming the new fashion it's like you want to invest in like your your interior living space so there's like a whole boom in that you know what luxury brands are more inspiring from a merchandising strategy perspective than a marketing perspective like the marketing is baked in the marketing is like what some family did for three generations a hundred years ago you know Hermes made used to make saddles Lululemon did uh trunks um yeah 100 percent. I think that and, and that's why you see a lot of these big fashion houses are usually heritage. And I didn't realize too, a lot of these newer fashion houses used to be protégés in the old fashion house and they just spun off like Tom Ford used to be at Gucci, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is House of Gucci, by the way, if you guys haven't read the book and or watched the movie is bananas. It is, uh, it's pretty crazy if you're into that, that weird world of uh, high fashion and highfalutin goods. Um, but Fantastic answer. I got the, the $2,000 tree stump. Let's go. Let's go. I, and recently just bought an absurd rock that was not a uh, luxury brand, but they got me with Ippy Dippy. Uh, Sonda, what's your brand inspo? I'm going to pull an Alex as well. I feel like it's the same. Like, what's your favorite 
Guy's hedging on me. Guy's hedging on me. Turn it up. Yeah, but it's like you can't you can't choose just like BMW overall or Mercedes overall. It like comes down to the you love the Mercedes wagon is untouched. Get out of here. I love all wagons. So it, that that's what I'm saying. Every everyone has their own. Now, if you the one that I've probably been studying and looking at the most, and you're gonna love this, Raba is Liquid Death. I just feel like they just break the playbook. I, you know, yeah. So I'm getting a lot of inspiration from what they do. So I'll go with them right now because I feel like I don't know. I'm attracted to anyone who does things differently, and they obviously do. Mike is a genius. Can I actually uh, extrapolate on that? I think the best place to build a brand is in commoditized products because that becomes your differentiator. You think of like, I mean, luxury, again, there's there's a difference between a premium product, like maybe like a coach bag or something, right? Versus like a Birkin bag from Hermes where it's just, you can't even buy that online. Like that's one of the interesting things about luxury is the thing the thing they care about most is distribution. If you control your distribution, you control your brand. And that's why like you want to kill a brand, see it end up in TJ Maps. Like that, that's exactly how you hit kill a high quality brand where it's like now it becomes into this utilitarian purpose. And there was a, a Louis Vuitton had a huge counterfeiting scandal or not scandal, but a problem uh, five, 10 years back, something like that with their monogram bags, especially in China, huge in China, their biggest stores in China. Uh, 40% of the revenue comes from China. Anyways, uh, but the two I did read there is they can't have a bunch of people running around with Louis Vag because then that starts to really dissipate that brand equity where you want people to have the aspiration to own that bag versus um, if you saw everybody in the street having it, then it starts to become like, oh my gosh, the people that are actually giving you money, not buying the counterfeits, aren't going to do that because they don't want to be associated with that. A little elitist, but Sometimes, like Alex said, life hits you in the face. Um, okay, we're going to start with you, Sodner, and give you a second to think on this, Alec. Uh, what's one best practice you see thrown around that needs to stop? I mean, I would probably go back to nurture flows that are just full of offers. There's like zero value, and just constant, constant like offers by this, by that, where there's like very limited value into yeah, I mean, more or less what you could use the product for, or just like little how-to guides or things that I think just provide more value to the consumer outside of buying a product. I love that. I love that. Made me invite your community instead. Ding. <laughs> uh, Alex, you're up. What's one best practice you see thrown around that needs to stop? The way that most retention marketing is measured. Ooh, say more. Uh, so the absolute worst way to measure retention marketing is solely through in-platform metrics, like what you see in your ESP or your SMS provider. Yeah. The, the slightly better last click, like that will give you a sense of how things are performing like relatively over time. Um, or, and it's a way to compare one campaign to another, but it it doesn't help you basically like if your your product is good and your brand isn't broken some amount of your customers are going to come back and repurchase even if you don't market to them at all so the lift that marketing creates above that retention rate is what you need to be measuring and it's hard it's it's like there's no out of the box tool to measure that but 
if you're solely chasing KPIs that you get out of Google Analytics or like your ESP, you're you might be actually making things worse than doing nothing. Ooh, hot takes. It's um, I had a, a friend in uh, university, and he ended up taking a test, and like somehow the he did so bad on the test that it would have been better off to the end grade for him just not to take the test than actually take the test. Um, so I think that's a very analogous to what you're saying. Uh, what is it? The Hippocratic principle at, at first, do no harm. Um, and so if you're going to do harm, just don't do it and let, let these people convert anyways. Um, I love that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Alex, and I'll go to you, Sander. Are you using AI in any of your marketing right now? And what they are, if you are using it, and what's the use case? I'm not because there's nothing I need to iterate that rapidly. Like, I I don't need it to write. I'm going to piss so many people off. Like, a, a model who says I eat cheeseburgers all the time. I yeah, and that's on fire. I know. I just don't need it. I don't struggle to get inspiration or to, to start off my writing. Knockwood, like... I, it's not something I feel I need, so I haven't used it for like content. And I had, there's nothing in my consulting world that I need to iterate enough where that would be, you know, helpful for me. So no zero to one issue with you. It's all just carve out the time and let's do it. Yeah, shout out to the artist's way. That's how I I credit that to being able to just go from zero to one pretty consistently what's i'm I'm not hip what's artist way a book or a... yeah it's well it's a book but it's like a 12-week program where they that you you're supposed to write three pages every morning when you get up and okay. they give you prompts uh to write around each week but then you're also supposed to like ideally you do with a group of people and you kind of meet each link and like talk through it and it helps you community Unblock. Yeah, it is. It is a community. No, I love that. The artist way. I need to check it out. I, I did a 30 for 30 with Dickie Bush. That was absolutely transformative in um, how I how I wrote. And uh, just there's a lot of self-limiting beliefs that I think a lot of people have with writing where it's just like getting it done. So I think that's one of the reasons why people um, not as enlightened such as yourself um, have some um, really excitement around AI where they can get some zero to one ideas. Cause I think zero to one ideas are really interesting, but one N is really where a lot of the money's made. Summer, what do you, you're, you're hip, you're, you're all into the tech. What, what's some of your favorite AI and use cases? I mean, I think my favorite use cases right now is probably data extraction. So uploading a bunch of reviews or comments on email responses, right. And then just seeing what like the most common themes are so kind of just helps i don't know do it like a va would do or you know an entry level employee but if you don't have one of those it it helps out um i've used it a little bit for like art inspiration but i feel like the art side kind of falls flat it doesn't go as like extreme and creative as i would want there's a guy on twitter and i'll have to add him in the show notes i think it's nick or something like that but he's doing some crazy stuff with Mid Journey, and he actually puts the prompts in the uh, like uh, the Twitter thread to see what he's prompting. And he did like a whole design thing, like, and they're amazing. It's really incredible. I think that's going to become the next kind of job that you never thought would be a job is like understanding how to prompt um, some of these AI engines to really get 
I just did, uh, we're working on some new messaging um, around attribution, first party pixel powered stuff, et cetera, et cetera, um, with Alan, uh, who's absolute wordsmith, one of the people, one of our coworkers, as well as uh, Yakov. And we used uh, Champ GPT. And some of the copy that was coming out of there was like, you would not be angry if it was on a website. And I, it really, that was my first kind of epiphany where I was like, wow, there might be something here, especially uh, for Alex, like a boutique agency is not a, as particular, but like if you have set, like I could have serviced four to 10 clients in a, in a day where I can build these briefs. And a lot of the client pitching is about just narrative and story building around the things that you created. But sometimes the creation of those things is so time consuming that you can use AI, tighten it up a little bit, and then pitch it to the client. And then once you get sign off, then you can really go hard in on it. But it was really interesting, like the blank paper thesis of being able to have like high level, like here's the three things we want to talk about. Here's the tone we want. Here's how long we want it. And some of the stuff it was spitting out was like pretty, pretty interesting. So um, I'm, I'm, the data extraction is really interesting. So we're working on some natural language processing stuff as well as um, some generative AI stuff to start to ingest some of that data. But I think that does get really interesting where um, if you can bring in Facebook comments or reviews or things of that nature, even if it doesn't even write the copy for you, but to surface like here's all the top objections. Or So we have something called Gong that we use on, on all our sales calls. And we'll kind of review that to see kind of what the bigger objections are, et cetera, et cetera. And just that the data aggregation and then surfacing kind of those commonalities, I do think is like perfect for AI, but uh, the artist's way, I have homework to do. I have homework to do. What's your favorite ad of all time? And I'll start with you, Sandra, so you can have it, uh, some time to think. I will probably, I mean, ad campaign is probably like the think different that Apple yeah. came out with. You were I would probably yeah. go, if I have to pick like a, a specific ad, it's probably the 1984. Yeah, where they're walking off. They're walking off so the grumpy the little machine following the people. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then I forget who the Olympian is that comes in and like throws the hammer at the screen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it all. Super strong. Yeah. Powerful Steve Jobs. Alex, what do you got for me? So I, the thing that immediately came to mind is... Um, I, I really started getting into fashion in like the middle of high school. So I think about, I don't, I'm not going to tell you what year it was. <laughs> All the fashion campaigns that came out in those years when I was first getting into it, I still remember. And it, it was like Alexander McQueen, like Gucci, Saint Laurent. It was kind of back before the publishing industry totally collapsed. So the the campaigns and honestly it was also before like in instagram really exploded so the, yeah. the campaigns were a lot more risk-taking and creative and like almost like movie posters and i yeah. still you know i still remember them have i bought from any of those brands probably not brand diffusion is it still i heard that's in trouble that you can still buy yeah, they've never been profitable. If they go out of business, they'll cry because it's like half their closet, but they're still economically irresponsible if you don't buy some of these things. You're like, what? How is that so cheap? Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. Um, I think the, I don't know if you guys, I'm old, so you guys probably don't remember, but the Google Glass ad where um, they parachuted in the Google Glass into the Moscone Center 
Um, and then they ride the bike and then they give the Google boss to, uh, Sergey, I think was, uh, one of my, my top favorite ads where it was, it was just so ridiculous over the top. Some of the OG, uh, automobile, automobile ads, I'm a big, uh, David Ogilvy guy. Um, and some of those, uh, were copy used to be to your point, Alex, where, um, just a medium dictates the advertising and, uh, copy used to be really, um, really, really prevalent or really, really good because it was so important. Um, I know you're up against it, Alex. So where can people find you? Are you taking clients? How do they subscribe and know best practices this time indoors? So you can find me on Twitter at Hey, it's Alex P as in Peter. Um, and my website is nobestpractices.co. And that's like the best place to sign up to my uh, newsletter. I'm still trying to build out a good sign up page. Um, but I, I send it out twice a month. I won't blow up your inbox um and i'm i'm not currently taking on clients but what i am working on is i'm trying to make my retention audit offering of like more scalable so honestly i can get the price down and bring it to more people so if you're interested in learning more about that like what what should i put in my flows what should i think about in terms of offers how does my merchandise assortment impact my customer quality? Like all of those questions that are hard to get out of out of the box tools. Um, sign up to my my newsletter, and within the next couple of months, hopefully, I'll have an announcement about like with more details about that. Ooh, I'd love to talk some more as well. I am always down for uh, integrating more education into the TDAPs. Sandy Sonder. Always a pleasure, my friend. Where can people find you? How can they connect with you? Let them know. Find me on Twitter at Sonder Schrode or any social network. It's the same. So Amazing. find me there. Amazing. And shout out to Ashvin Malbwani. He is out of town right now. He'll be back next week. But make sure to go to your local vitamin shop. I didn't forget about Josh. Um, if you want to get more involved with Triple Well, it's triplewell.com. And then we have a wonderful newsletter that goes out every Tuesday, Thursday called Wellmail. You can subscribe right on triplewell.com slash Wellmail. Go follow Alex. Her backlog, uh, if there is ever anybody that writes evergreen content, it's Alex. She is just an absolute just maven of marketing. Um, it's just, I've learned so much from her. And the, the way that she puts pros and ideas together is really unrivaled. So Alex, I, I really appreciate all the writing. And, uh, you've been a little bit of a thread boy too. You're doing doing these little Twitter threads. I like them though. They're good. I'm trying. Go follow her. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you're going to follow her. Uh, criminally, criminally unfollowed. And then uh, we'll try and bring the retention program she's doing to the T-dubs as well because I'm sure it's going to be absolute heat. Alex, thank you so much for the timing. Uh, Sondra, thank you so much for uh, pinch hitting. You absolutely crushed it. And that's it, folks. That's another ad spin in the books. If you want to help out more, uh, make sure that we you subscribe on the YouTube channels and leave a review. Oh, I almost forgot. Alex, what's a word that people can send me to get some free merch for Triple Well? A word? Yeah. They have to email oh. a word so, so I know they listen to the end. Baked. Because Baked. we said it a lot. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. So message me either on LinkedIn or the Twitter is Baked. Um, I'm at Robert Ray Hill and same on the, the LinkedIn. If you message me that, although I message me your address and your size, we'll give you some merch out. Again, thanks so much, everybody. We really appreciate all of the awesomeness, all the support, and uh, we'll see you on the flip. Bye-bye.